Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Nottingham Playcast. The podcast is about to begin. Please take your seats. Hello and welcome to the Amplify podcast. I'm Craig Gilbert, Amplify producer at Nottingham Playhouse. I'm once again holed up in my makeshift bedroom studio, having a series of interesting conversations with exciting theatre folk. Thanks for listening. And I hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to the Amplify podcast. I'm Craig Gilbert and today I'm joined by the marvellous Rachel Bagshaw. How are you doing, Rachel? Uh, yeah, I'm very well. Thank you for having me on here. No, no, it's a great pleasure. Absolute pleasure to talk to you. Um, how is it all going for you at the moment as we slowly emerge from the, uh, the uh, somewhat sedentary chaos of the last uh, 18 months? Yeah, I think it's safe to say I feel like I'm also slowly emerging. Um we uh, have been doing a little bit of in-person work, but kind of, yeah, still very much uh, based at home um, as I kind of gradually get back to some semblance of normality. And how have the uh, the various iterations of lockdown been for you? Well, I've discovered um, over the last 18 months that I really love making films, which was not something that I'd um, ever thought I would be uh, at all interested with, to be honest. I thought I was very much a live theatre maker. Um, it was all about the audience. And then I've discovered that actually there's real joy and pleasure and kind of a totally different relationship with audience um, in making films. And so that's actually been a really like lovely, fortuitous kind of side effect of, of the last 18 months or so. Um, obviously wish there hadn't been a global pandemic to make that discovery, but it's been fun to, um, uh, to, yeah, to discover that about myself. Uh, sorry, the noise is my dog coming in and then leaving the room again. So uh... that's, that's very exciting. And um, what what is dog called? Uh, Ziggy. Uh, very much making her present known for some reason. Sorry. Uh, Excellent. Well, we, we we absolutely welcome pets uh, and children, babies. We've had babies. It's all you know. It, it, it doesn't really matter. Um, so, Rachel, can you tell me where are you from? Where did you grow up? Um, I grew up in Yorkshire, um, mm-hmm. near Huddersfield. Um, so yeah, very much a country, uh, country, country upbringing, um, and yeah, plenty of kind of touring theatre. I think on my doorstep, and uh, I was really lucky. Like the village I grew up in actually weirdly has kind of three community arts companies and um, a really thriving art scene, um, but in this kind of little rural Yorkshire village. So lots of music, lots of theatre, um, yeah, all on the doorstep, which was fun. And is that how you got involved in the theatre? There, are there arts in your family or are you the first one? No, very much the first one. Um, and yeah, kind of. I mean, there's um, a local festival every year called Moonraking, which actually was a, a lantern making festival. But I was involved in that and involved in uh, kind of performance that was part of that. And then um, kind of inevitably got into it at school, um, started directing really when I was at, um, at secondary school. And yeah, it sort of grew, grew a love from there. Brilliant. Um, Can you remember the first thing you directed ever at secondary school? Mm, good question. Um, well, I assistant directed on um, a local on a well on a, a production of Bugsy Malone when I was about fourteen. Um, so that I think was probably my first directing gig. <laughs> And what was the point where you decided that uh, yes, this is uh, this is the thing I'm I'm going to dedicate my life to and pursue as a career? Um, 
so I think I had a kind of I think I had a kind of long growing I think this is where it's at for me thing going on all the way through really all the way through kind of sixth form college but then uh when I was in sixth form college we came down to London um and we saw a production of The Cherry Orchard, um, which uh, Katie Mitchell directed. Um, oh my God, sorry, I just totally said the wrong play. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. Saw <laughs> a production of Uncle Vanya, which Katie Mitchell uh, directed. And um, that was when I went, that, that's what I want to do. That there was something so kind of transformational about it and about, uh, the detail and the kind of absorption of the world that I just went I just want to be able to I want to be able to tell stories not necessarily like that but I want to be able to tell stories with that kind of kind of conviction and clarity and engagement um yeah so that really and were you were you already studying drama things at sixth form college or were you yeah. doing yeah, so I did theatre studies and I did music as well. I did a lot of music and kind of played in um, Huddersfield, where I grew up. It's a very musical town and kind of had long history of, uh, uh, I mean, all sorts of things, but brass bands and contemporary music and all sorts of things. So, yeah, I grew up with a lot of music as well, which I think has infiltrated my work in sort of later on. Um, so, yeah, I was sort of studying it um, and, and um, doing, kind of doing a lot around it. But um, it was that moment and then kind of, I suppose gradually also over university, um, kind of exploring other forms, I suppose, and exploring other ways of of engaging with narrative and engaging with audience. Um, um, what was what were the forms that were picking your interest at that time? Well, I guess so. When I went to university, I went to um, I went to Lancaster, which is pr- a pretty experimental theatre department. Um, certainly, it was then. So it was sort of the first time I saw companies like Forced Entertainment or Imitating the Dog, um, kind of work that just really pushed the boundaries of form and kind of exposed me to stuff that I just hadn't really seen before. Um, And so then again, there's sort of like, I suppose, questions that have kind of continually cropped up for me about how we engage with an audience. Um, I think my kind of interest in audience has always been rooted in the community works that I grew up with and in. Um, But then this, the kind of work that I saw and made when I was at university started engaging with an audience in a very different way, often a very provocative way, Um, you know, sometimes really welcoming the audience into that provocation, sometimes kind of putting it out there and like directly kind of challenging us with it. And I think that really sort of shook up my kind of view of what theatre is and could be and I think it's also where I started really exploring much in much more detail kind of non-linear narratives or how how we tell stories not just through the story itself but also through all like the fabric of what we make a show with so you know the, the kind of the form of something the structure of it how the dramaturgy of something tells the story just as much as the story itself uh, this is a question I asked her uh, everyone who uh, comes on the podcast. Obviously, we've all been at home now for the majority of the last 18 months, and we haven't had much opportunity to go and see work. Obviously, there's been work online, but it's not quite the same. And a lot of people who listen to this podcast are emerging artists who have not really had the opportunity to make much 
but what were the were there any things that were like resources or books that were particularly important to you around this time that uh, you think it would be useful for uh, emerging artists to have a glance at? Do you mean as a student or in this t- last eighteen months or so? Sorry, I, I meant uh, as a student in like the uh, the formative stage of your career. Yeah, so I actually don't think this was out when I was a student, but Tim Etchell's book Certain Fragments has actually been a really kind of inspirational piece of. Uh, writing for me um and then also for me too actually I love that I love that book and I uh I love the there's that there's the bit in that book where he took where he's talking about story but uh through uh how he tells stories to his children I think that's a really a really um intricate exploration of narrative in a way that seems really simple but it's also really touching like really stayed with me that bit of that book yeah and there's so many kind of I suppose I think it, it, it chimes for me about how Tim makes work, which is this kind of extraordinarily like detailed and complex and, and often very technical and kind of cerebral approach. And then also, as you say, this kind of extraordinarily like human and touching um, and kind of sensory experience and how those two interplay. Um, so, yeah, I think as a piece of writing um, and as a kind of as a sort of methodology it's really inspiring and then I think another book actually which was uh kind of to hand a lot was a book called On Directing which is um now looking for it on my bookshelves but uh was this collection of interviews with directors and again kind of quite wide-ranging I mean Katie Mitchell was in there but also some more experimental artists and I think there's something for me going oh oh I could I could do this in in those interviews kind of hearing things in there that I identified with or you know I kind of felt like oh that's something I could do myself and what were what were you making while you were at university what were you exploring I mean I sort of slightly cringe when I think about some of the work <laughs> at university I'm sure like lots of us yeah um, absolutely. but we I mean you know kind of the inevitable making quite a lot of work which was around kind of identity and sense of self and culture I think the thing I suppose to say was that I became disabled just before I went to university. So at the age of 19, I had um, a running accident, I tripped and fell, um, and that developed into um, a chronic pain condition. So I started my degree um, kind of with a bit of a limp and I finished my degree as a wheelchair user. Um, Mm. And so whilst on the one hand, I'm kind of, you know, painting this rosy picture of me discovering directing and thinking, yeah, this is the life for me. This is all, you know, what it's all about. Some of that was also then born out of necessity that I I found myself wanting to make, you know, quite physical work and work that was based in a lot of movement and not being able to do that myself. And so increasingly over that three years, I found myself moving into more directing roles, um, like I say, in part out of necessity. Um, and so that definitely kind of shaped and sort of shifted the ways in which I uh, made work over that time. When you um, when you come to leave university, what are the um, uh, what are the the steps you take to start being a professional artist? What's what's the pathway? I was really lucky to get a place uh, on a directing postgrad course at a drama school. But actually, what I had to do the year after university was go home. Uh, back to my parents for a year Mm. Um, I was pretty ill couldn't walk um, and had to sort of spend a year 
uh, trying to improve my health. Um, and again, you know, kind of looking back on that period, that was a hugely formative year in terms of what that, how that shaped my approach to work um, later on. But at the time, obviously, it just felt like I was treading water, not even treading water. I couldn't even do that. So I was just sort of waiting um, this year out until I could go um, and do the, the course I wanted to do. And then I went to drama school. I did a much more kind of traditional, like more kind of tech-based um, course in directing. I, th I think I sort of felt like that I needed that kind of backbone to, to, to work so that I had this kind of rigor and approach to text, which was actually hugely, hugely useful. Um, and it's kind of, again, like it feels like that's where my career has then developed is this sort of intersection between kind of more formal practice and also more exploration um, like more experimental um and and also kind of where that meets with me as a disabled artist so in a way that like all of those bits and pieces then kind of fitted slotted together to to sort of push me out at the end of uh, my uh, my postgrad year and into the industry and um where did you do your your postgrad um at mount U. And and was that um, I mean obviously I'm sure it was informative but was it was it a, a good a good time did you enjoy yourself there I, I did yeah I mean it's a kind of interesting one because there's a bit of me that looks back and goes kind of oh if I had that money again you know if I had that funding again what would I could I have done something else like could I have made a couple of shows with it or you know instead of the training but the but in a way the train what the training gave me was space to you know make mistakes it gave me space to to learn it gave me space to kind of put uh into practice ideas that I had but but hadn't yet actually found space to try them out so without having done that I might not have felt like I could do uh, a, a show so it, yeah it definitely was a really useful year to kind of grow and I mean you know also made lifelong friends and um kind of partnerships and collaborations that are still going now. And then when you when you emerge from the postgrad, are you pursuing the traditional route of uh, assisting and trying to make your own stuff at the same time? Or what, what was happening immediately after that um, period at Mountview? So, yeah, I kind of left, I think because my year at Mountview had been fairly well supported in terms of kind of access and, and, and the support that was given to me as a disabled person. Mm -hmm. I think I sort of left thinking, oh, you know, I'll just sort of go straight out and start working. And it, it was really, really hard. I mean, you know, we're talking nearly 20 years ago and most of the fringe venues were inaccessible. They were above pubs or they were, you know, like completely dif difficult for me to get into as a wheelchair user. I couldn't do a lot of the kind of, you know, the day job stuff that other people did, like oh. 10 minutes, <laughs> 10 minutes. <laughs> Sorry, my dog is you now rolling around in joy on the sofa. Um, yeah, so I couldn't do a lot of the kind of, yeah, like temping or bar work, you know, those things that my peers were doing to kind of earn a bit of cash to be able to make some work on the fringe. And so actually what I ended up doing was getting a kind of proper job in, um, in a theatre. So I, I worked um, as a marketing assistant um, at Saddles Wells. And again, like hugely kind of informed um kind of where my work went and and what I suppose my understanding of audience my kind of 
understanding also of kind of commercial success, what works, what doesn't work, what sells. Um, it was amazing having done a lot of dance as, uh, as a kind of teen, child and teenager and then not, not having had much to do with the dance world. It was incredible just to be sort of absorbed in all of that and to see so much amazing work. So whilst, you know, there was a bit of me that was like, oh God, I'm, you know, this is not the kind of career path that I thought I was going to do is sort of taking you know a, a job within the theatre that wasn't directing it was so so useful did you did you ever think during that period that you wouldn't make it back to directing yeah definitely I mean I think you know the reality is that it was a like a, a really full-on job you know yeah. like like probably lots of us know that working within an a busy thriving organized theatre organization is like non-stop it was long hours it was you know endless press nights you know all sorts of things but um I, I kind of thought am I ever gonna have time to get back to it and also it started feeling further and further away and then I kind of I was lucky that I kind of landed a couple of things I, I got I got um an assisting job uh, that landed and then that coincided with me being offered some part-time marketing work in an organization which sort of enabled me to move out of the full-time job so slowly but surely kind of things started just moving and landing in the right places um, and then I spent um, gosh probably the best part of about four years working um, firstly as a freelancer um, and then employed by Grey Eye mm -hmm. um, and so again I kind of worked with them in lots of different ways actually I actually did some freelance marketing to start off with and then I did some assisting um, and then latterly I was um, the uh, training and learning uh, manager and ran all the participation work and was also really lucky that alongside that I was able to direct some shows for them so again it's sort of the space that that offered meant that I kind of was able to move out of the more administrative or even kind of project management roles and in and further into back into creative work. And is is it around that period that um, access to acting is born as well or does that come a bit later? That was actually a little bit later so I um, that was some work that started during that time so um, Access to Acting is a programme of work that uh, I've developed and been working on with RADA. Um, but actually, that's sort of in, um, in the last few years, we did start working in partnership when I was at Grey Eye with a number of drama schools. And that, again, sort of started firming up my kind of my interest and passion for access within training organisations. So it's something that I've kind of developed a huge amount of work around um, over sort of the last 10 years or so. And I think in a way up to that point, I think there was a bit of me that felt like um, that I was a, you know, I was a director first and the, the sort of disabled bit came second or maybe, you know, maybe didn't even feature at all. And, mm -hmm. and actually the time that I spent at Grey Eye really enabled me to kind of, I suppose, politically identify as a disabled person and yeah. to find my uh, way with with what that meant for me and as an artist, but also what that meant I could offer, I suppose, to, to the sector. Um, and, and yeah, so, so that was a, it was a useful uh, learning time for me in lots of different ways. And can you just unpick a, unpick a little bit um, 
what it what it did and does mean for you as an artist so yeah I guess what it means for me is it's about sense of identity um, and how my identity as a disabled person kind of finds its way into all aspects of my work so in some ways that's been about the stories that I've told or I'm telling um, sometimes that's about the ways in which I engage with an audience so I might kind of thinking I might be thinking about creative access I might be thinking about how we I want to reach um, a wider kind of variety of audience but it also always informs the ways in which I make work um, and so my own access requirements have a really kind of quite big impact on how on my directing practice and how I work in the rehearsal room is really quite informed by um, what my what my own body needs essentially. Um, and I think also, like I, like I sort of started saying about training, I think as I started realizing how few disabled people had, for example, trained at drama school, how how fortunate I'd been to have that experience, but how little how sort of few people I saw then coming up kind of after me that that really kind of had quite a, an impact on me and has and has led to a lot of the work that I've done with drama schools and particularly the work that I've done with RADA around trying to engage young disabled people um early and and get them interested in or or even kind of opening their the possibilities to them of applying to drama school which perhaps they hadn't even considered was an option for them. And so can you talk then a little bit uh, about the um, the process that you touched on briefly just then what what does it uh, what does the first week in your rehearsal room tend to look like? Well I guess to say that so I suppose my practice or my process is always really informed by the piece of work that I'm working on um, mm -hmm it tends to be really guided actually by the material itself and so whilst I have a sort of big toolbox of uh, bits and pieces or kind of or frameworks or kind of ways of working I'll really kind of pick and choose what what I take into a process um, I never do any table work I never sit around the table really at all and again some of that has been really impacted and informed by my um, need to work in a much more kind of flexible way um the big mm. shift there practically is that I work from a beanbag so I have a massive giant rehearsal room beanbag um and I lie on that beanbag and uh, I might sleep on that beanbag in breaks and I might sit up on the beanbag um and in a way what that's done to the room is that we don't work from tables we might sit around on the floor or we might kind of move furniture around or we might move around the room and shove my beanbag around into different spaces but we never kind of formally sit you know around a table and read the play um so my first week tends to be about kind of inevitably about getting to know the piece of work and if that's a a, a new piece of writing or if, if it's an existing script then that's about kind of us understanding the world of that we'll do lots of different kinds of readings of it, um, lots of kind of physical playing with it, lots of games. I'm very game-based in, in uh, the way I work. Um, lots of lots of kind of uh, physical sort of space shifting. Um, 
I tend to work in really short bursts. So I kind of do something for an hour and then we'll put it down and do something else. So I tend not to work on anything for very long. And my process tends to be about kind of layering things up, layering things up um, and building up a kind of, I suppose a sort of patchwork of ideas as we as as the kind of process unfolds and ideas start landing. And can you give me an example of um, uh, the physical exploration of what that what that might look like? Yeah, so I mean, people who've been in my rehearsal room will often hear me kind of go, "What's the game here? What's the game?" And and so sometimes those are kind of simple, you know, improvisation tasks that that might happen in other rooms often there might be a kind of specific game or like I might take an existing game um I'm just trying to think of an example for an, for example a show I directed at the unicorn just before uh the pandemic hit we uh created a very complex kind of game of snakes and ladders essentially got the actors to create a kind of massive uh kind of grid-based game in the room that helps us to really understand the kind of logic of the structure of the text. So it was this sort of enormous three-dimensional mapped across the space, objects everywhere. It had absolutely like nothing to do with the story really of the play, but it was about us understanding the kind of mechanisms um, by which this, this play was written and the kind of structure of it. Um, and so I'm always kind of looking for that. I'm looking for like the, yeah, the kind of, the, the little kind of keys that come in for me in those kind of playful games that will help us find roots into to the ways in which we're trying to tell that story. It's not just the story itself, it's also about trying to layer and layer and layer what we kind of find out and mine about the form and the structure. And again, you know, how all of those things are working to tell the story. And so this the intricate uh, grid-based game that uh, you developed during the rehearsals of was that the B in me? Is that the show? It was with the B in me, yeah, yeah. How how did that then um, manifest itself in the production, or was it just that it was in the actors' bodies? How what what's the uh, the journey from that being useful in the rehearsal room to being something tangible for an audience? So. Um... There were a couple of moments actually that physically became uh, kind of mapped around that game-based program. And I've said, you know, it's nothing to do with the play. Of course it was to do with mm. the play. Was, um, the the, the B&E yeah. story that's kind of told, um, it's, it's about a, a young person who comes from a, a very deprived home and it follows this young person through their, the course of a day where they're trying to survive, basically, trying to get themselves to school and trying to get through the school day and trying to find something to eat because their parents don't look after them. Um, and all the time they're playing this kind of video game in their in their heads in which they become a bee. Um, and the story is then told by three performers, none of whom are playing the, the character really apart from one or two moments so it's very intricate there's a lot going on and the mm. game kind of helped us to really unlock the ways in which all of those kind of different strands that the, the play was using to tell the story fitted together like I said it did kind of unlock a couple of like actual practical kind of staging moments um but also it was about kind of getting the the kind of push-pull of that game, the kind of snakes and ladders, you know, you go up a level and then something doesn't work and you have to go back again. And the sort of repetition in that, and that landed in the performers' bodies in such a kind of extraordinary way that 
um, was something that we were then able to really build on. And, and the, the movement director, um, Annie, was really able to kind of learn so much. I think we both learned so much about which of the like which of the performers kind of took a lead in that game which of them held back which of them fell down the snake and you know found themselves at the bottom again and kind of how all of that sort of pieced together in the in the storytelling um this is really interesting and there's the so i'm really interested in this idea of finding the game is that is that terminology that comes from john wright or is it sort of adjacent to that and just happens to be the same thing yeah, I think it is. I mean, it, yeah, definitely John Wright talks about it as well. Um, I think I've, you know, I, I definitely know I've had conversations with Marianne Elliott, um, which is kind of similar thing. Like, I, I, I'm really, you know, for me, this what, what we do is all about play. And I think my approach to work is about, I suppose, is, is about kind of how do we feel it first and think about it later. Mm. Um, and and I guess I want you know I want to find that in the performers and in the performers' worlds and in the performers' bodies. So for me, increasingly, kind of as getting into that and getting into the physical worlds of it and then getting into the physical games of it um, is is where I can really start getting the audiences, you know, kind of bodies into it and their minds thinking about it later or their brains rather, you know, responding to it later. Yeah, absolutely. And um, what I'm keen to know is, uh, had you had the idea for, um, just going back to the, the game in the B&Me rehearsals for a moment, had you planned that game before rehearsals began, or did you discover it together with the people in the room? So that one was one, definitely one I discovered in the process, but not in the room. So quite, So sometimes I'll have kind of ideas for loosely we'll call them games prior to rehearsal and then sometimes something will form and I'll go well, this is something we need to kind of dig into and find find uh yeah and really mine it for the for the kind of again the game the system the the, the, the task that's going to unlock that for us mm-hmm. um it kind of tends to be a bit of a, a sort of <laughs> I was going to say a hodgepodge <laughs> which I think is probably accurate about my process um but um yeah, there's a bit of it, there's, there's, you know, a big load of it that's planned. And then there's a load of it that sort of is there right for discovering in the room. Um, and and again, and then there's a whole load of stuff that sort of sits somewhere in between those two things, I think. You know, I, I actually can't remember with that game, but there's plenty of four in the morning thoughts for me about when something's kind of, you know, simmered from the day and I kind of, it, you know, suddenly the light bulb goes off and I go, oh, it's that, it's that. We need to just try and, try and really you know, investigate this, this idea, this rhythm, this, this feeling in this particular moment and see where that takes us. Do you have uh, sort of a set of tools already uh, in, in your head and in, well, in your locker, in your toolbox, I suppose, mm-hmm. that would, uh, will do certain things. So for example, um, I'm, I'm going to play this game that's really good at getting three people talking at once. So I'm being very basic, but just so I can feel my way through it. So I know that there's that version of that game. So we'll start with that. And then perhaps in the room, we'll extrapolate from that and make our own version of it. Is that how it works? Or yes. You... Yeah, great. Uh, absolutely. Often I, it will, I'll start with something that's existing. I mean, you know, and in a way, this kind of massive, weird version of Snakes and Ladders was kind of taking a formula that we already knew, you know, it was sort of 
uh, you know, a board game or a kind of video platform game that was that was kind of present in the script as well. But but it was extrapolating that idea, but then getting the actors to create something. I do a lot of getting um, the whole team. So again, I work I work a lot with um, all of us in the room, um, as many of, of, of the creative team as I'm able to have in the room, and as many of the actors as I'm able to have in the room um, all the time. Um, I find that that way, even if people um, are kind of, for example, you know, actors are not in a scene, but they play the game with us and that suddenly unlocks something for them about their scene that they hadn't realized. And so again, I try and as much as possible, that layering involves everybody. Um, you know, the sound designer plays the snakes and ladders game for us because actually they then discover something about rhythm or about pace or about, um, kind of dynamics in a particular moment that they hadn't experienced before. So that for me is a really huge part of it as well is like, yeah, lots of adapting, lots of bastardizing, lots of kind of uh, going, it's, it's a bit of this and maybe a bit of the other. And what happens if I put those together and kind of land that with that bit of text um, and, and kind of mixing things up? I'd be really interested to know how has your process developed over time, um, because that it sounds like amazing uh, and a brilliantly creative environment and very sophisticated. Um, but were you doing this kind of thing when you first started making your first pieces of work with Grey Eye, for example, or is this process um, sort of uh, become more intricate and developed over you know the practice of many years? Absolutely the latter. I mean, it's very much kind of developed over the whole of my directing career, I would say. Um, I was lucky after I'd been at Grey Eye to spend um, the best part of a year at the Young Vic. So I kind of, again, was able to um, assist a variety of directors, but also kind of just to sort of sit in a, on a lot of workshops and really absorb a lot of different directors' ways of working. Um, and I think all of that's kind of put me in a position where I've been, the more confidence I've got and the more work of my own I've directed over the last 10 years or so, um, the more I've been able to play with all of those ideas. I think, you know, probably when I was in my kind of, you know, post drama school days and even up to sort of being at Mountview, uh, at uh, Grey Eye, I think I thought, I still thought there was like a system, you know, the mm -hmm. right way of doing things. And there was a sort of a handbook and you followed the handbook. Um, and I think increasingly the more work I worked, I explored that also didn't fit neatly into that or didn't follow, you know, a pattern where all the, you know, events or units landed in the same way, or, you know, that actually your intentions were played to the audience. And what did that do to the quality of, of the, of the works that needed to happen. I think all of that started unlocking things for me that went, oh, I see, no, I can do this my own way. I can do, I can find my own paths with all of this. But that took time and confidence, I would say. And I'd, I'd love to know, I sort of, uh, I ask most people this question. Is there a moment you can point to in your career where you thought, yes, I actually, I am this now. This is what I do. Yeah, um, and I think, I mean, the kind of, I suppose, totally transformational piece of work in so many ways was making a piece called The Shape of the Pain, mm -hmm. uh, which, yeah, I made um, and, and we took to Edinburgh in 2017. 
Um, it was an autobiographical piece um, about living with chronic pain. Um, and I um, co-created it with uh, writer Chris Thorpe, um, with an amazing team of, of artists and, and um, brilliant performer, Hannah McPaik. But also the process by which we made that was the, the kind of the first time where I really embraced what my access requirements were because I had to, because I couldn't make a piece about pain and deny the pain in the room. I had to allow space for me to feel pain and to lie on the beanbag in the middle of the room in whatever state I was in and, um, and for the team to be a part of that. Um, and so whilst I'm hugely proud of it as a piece of work um, and, and you know, very proud of the thing that we've made and has kind of subsequently, you know, we've been toured and done other runs, I, I'm kind of equally proud in the discoveries I made in what I need um, and how what I need, as we talked about earlier, informs my creative practice. Mm. Um, and so that, yeah, the making of that show just unlocked that for me. Yeah, I found myself in a kind of much more like open and accepting um, place having made The Shape of the Pain. Whereas before, because I was trying to deny so much of what was going on for me in terms of access, it was hindering my work. It was holding me back. Mm. And actually just by really accepting that, by really embracing it, by really having it just present in the room, it's done so much for my work. It's been totally transformational. And the, the last few years, I think, has been some of my most exciting times creatively. Obviously, you uh, you work at the Unicorn now uh, as, um, as as a permanent member of staff. Is that right on the creative team at the Unicorn? Yeah, so I'm associate director at the Unicorn. Yeah. Brilliant. And and how how is that? Uh, how is that? What's what's that like? Well, so again, kind of going back to where I started off, I suppose that my kind of roots in terms of community and in terms of work that really speaks to an audience or, or kind of engages with an audience. There's nothing like a unicorn audience for that. Um, I had this sort of sneaky, don't tell anybody this, but uh, sort of this realization partway through last year that I wasn't actually that bothered about, like, about not seeing theatre. I didn't miss it that much, but I really missed seeing stuff with a unicorn audience. Um, there's sort of nothing like being in that theatre with, you know, I don't know, a bunch of 10 year olds who have never been to the theatre before and, and, and then kind of being with them on that journey is just extraordinary. Um, and we've been really kind of uh, fortunate as an organisation to, to keep making work through the last 18 months. So again, kind of quite a bit of the film work I've made in that time has been for the unicorn and, and again the sort of joy of being able to continue to put work out and make work for um, our young audiences has been extraordinary to be able to do that. Brilliant well it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you uh, Rachel I just have one more question um, before we finish off today if that's okay. Yeah. Can you tell us about the last work of art that absolutely blew your mind and I'm art in the most general sense so theatre, film, visual art, music, anything you like. Yeah, I can actually, which is, um, I saw Hafez Schechter's uh, film Political Mother last weekend, which um, Battersea Arts Centre put out as a, as a stream. Um, I saw, it's a piece of work I saw um, at the theatre about 10 years ago, um, and this is a kind of new reimagining of it, 
um, made as a film um, in Battersea Arts Centre building and it was extraordinary. Um, just so kind of physically powerful and um, like energised and full of rage and full of hope and full of uh, heart and made me want to move and dance and made me um, want to watch them live. Yeah, just totally blew me away. Um, so I have no idea what's happening to that, whether it's going to come back out as another film, but if it does, please watch it, people. It's incredible. Brilliant. Well, Rachel, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this specially recorded episode of the Nottingham Playhouse Playcast Amplify podcast series. To find out more about the Amplify programme or the rest of our work, visit nottinghampleyhouse.co.uk. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast for all the latest episodes as they're released.